When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the EDH RETCAST, where we're all about commander, data, and dad jokes. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined by my fantastic co-host, who I almost don't even want to introduce because he had the audacity to do a whole social media week about graveyard hate cards. It's Dana Roach. Dana, how dare you? It was not directed at you, I, I, I promise. I mean, maybe it's Pride Month. How bit. could right. you do this to me? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was uh, that was thoughtless on my part. Um, <laughs> How you doing, I, I did see something strange today, though. Um, I, I saw a frog park his car illegally. Um, I was shocked. Did he get towed? I was shocked when I got towed. Yeah. Hey, Matt's not here, but I'm a beach into the punchline <laughs> on the dad jokes. See, you're, get, you're getting good at these. Like you're, we, we've rewired your brain to just think of the worst possible jokes. Yeah, can't make a segue to save my life at all, <laughs> but I can predict some of the dad jokes. So you know, it's checks and balances. It, it you know, it's hit and miss on my end. Ah, oh, goodness. But yeah, as we mentioned, Matt won't be here for this episode. He was a bit busy. But Dana, we've got an interesting topic lined up. What are we talking about this week? We are going to talk about um, logging our games and whether or not we're winning too much. <laughs> yeah. Are these decks um, too good? What makes a deck too good? What is an acceptable win percentage? Stuff like that. It'll be kind of interesting. And as you mentioned, we are logging our games this year, both of us. So we do have some numbers to look into. And I wonder how that will inform the conversation. I think this will be a really interesting one. But we've got some stuff to shout out before we get there. I first want to thank Chase, also known as Mana Curves, for helping editing the show. You can find them on Twitter at Mana Curves. And if you'd like to support us, you can like and subscribe on the YouTubes, or you can go to patreon.com slash and support us there. We've got awesome perks, including an exclusive Discord community, getting early access to videos. It's a really, really great time. Definitely check it out if you'd like to show a little support to the show. And of course, one of our perks is to shout out one of our patrons. And this episode, we're going to give that shout out to Kevin Bop, which is just such a cool name. That's such a good name. Kevin, thank you so, so much for supporting the show. Matt is going to be so annoyed he didn't get to say Kevin Bob. <laughs> I feel like he would do that, mm, Bob, give it up. He would not be able to resist the handsome shout out. Yeah, we will channel your, your spirit, Matt, even though you're not here on this episode with us. Um, and thank you again so much, Kevin. And now, Dana, let's get to the episode. Uh, talking about decks that maybe might be winning too much, but first I think we gotta lay some groundwork. So Dana, you and I have both been tracking our game data this year, and I'm first of all curious what inspired you to do this. So I first did this, I want to say in 2019, um, and, and I don't remember necessarily what the impetus was for it. 
I think I just wanted to like do something different for an article. So I'm like, well, that, that would provide me with some data and I can look at my decks mm-hmm. and maybe know if I am, I, you know, overtuning things or not. So that was the original plan. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe I'll just do this every year. Um, and then 2020 happened. Um, <laughs> so yeah. wasn't yeah. playing a lot of games in person. So I kind of stopped and that bled into, you know, 2021. Um, and then I had just kind of gotten out of the hat. So like kind of forgot I was doing it. And for some reason I was this year when the first of the year rolled around, I kind of remembered like this is something I'd wanted to keep track of every year. So mm-hmm. I, I jumped back on, on board and then you had simultaneously decided to do the same thing basically, right? Yeah. And it was like completely independent of each other, which right. I find yeah. very funny. <laughs> yeah. And, and you actually, I, I've just been logging like wins and losses for, for a particular decks. You have gotten much more detail on the games you're playing. Yeah, um, it's a lot. I'm <laughs> so uh, for folks curious, I actually made a video about this last month. It was an early sneak peek video about this subject. Um, but we also know that the folks who are watching just on the YouTube are not the same necessarily as the uh, audience here on just the podcast. So we wanted to also announce it on the podcast. Like, yeah, at the end of the year, we're hoping to have an interesting episode about the results of logging all of our games. Right. But I think it's fair to say that I maybe went a little bit overboard in the stuff that I'm tracking. I'm going like all in. In. Not only am I tracking which decks I play and how often, but I'm also tracking like the game length and like first player KO and uh, like fast mana and stuff like that. And that's um, like how often does the first player win? Like it, it's a lot of stuff. And frankly, I do sometimes go a little bit stir crazy about it. I don't necessarily recommend this as an exercise for everyone out sure. there. And Dana, <laughs> right. I can see why that's not stuff that you're going to track because it's hard to get up the patience for it, you know? Well, all you've done is make me like wish I would have tracked more data. So <laughs> you're not scaring me away from doing so next year. If anything, you've convinced me like maybe next year I need to have a better log. Well, and there are some things that I didn't realize that I maybe would want to track until partway through the year. So some of those things are also like not entirely holistic. Um, But for the purposes of this, to get back to why I thought it would be interesting to do it, it was the same motivation that you had, where I was especially interested about win rate and also like sort of game length for like, what is my average game length overall? And are there certain decks that are like going several turns before that, like to sort of measure which of my decks really feel the most powerful? And does that line up with my projection of them, my abstract idea of them? Um, but like tracking the win rate, it isn't because I want to make sure that I'm winning. If anything, it's because I kind of want to make sure that I'm not winning too much with a whole lot of those decks, that they're not punching above their weight class or, or stuff like that. Sure. And that also seems to be a thing that you have experienced because this episode is a thing we're recording and we kind of realized that about some of our decks, that some of them uh, actually have some pretty good numbers, almost shockingly good numbers. Yeah. Um now, I, I will say this, having done this once before, um, my reaction to some of those uh, higher than expected win rates this time is a little bit different than it was in 2019. Mm. Um, and I guess this might be a time to kind of jump into that, I suppose, right away. Mm. Um, so uh, to, to flashback to 2019, I had a couple decks that were in the like 40-ish percent win rate. I mean, nothing was above 50, but there was, I think I had two or three decks that were in the you know, 39 to 42% win rate or so. Um, and, and one of the things I, I did in response to that at the end of the year was like, well, I, I think those decks are probably winning too many games. What can I change about those decks and all of my lists? Because I don't think I had any that year that were under 25%. And, you know, if you assume you're playing in an evenly matched pod with four people, you know, you probably should be winning like 
back of the matchbook kind of math, a quarter of your games, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I was just going on that assumption, like, well, these decks are winning more, so I'd probably want to make a few tweaks. What are some tweaks I can make? Um, and, and I already don't really run much fast mana outside of Soul Ring. So, like, I'm not running Mana Crypt. I'm not running, you know, uh, Mox Opal. I'm not running Vault. I'm not running, um, you know, a, a Chrome or Diamond or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, the main thing I was looking at was, like, well, I can just pull my tutors out. I have Demonic Tutor in, in a couple black decks. I had Vamp in one or two decks. I was running Enlightened in a white deck. So, like, that's an easy thing I thought I could change. Pull those tutors out. And I want to pulling rifts too at the same time, Cyclonic Rift in my blue decks. Sure. Um, so like I, th- so those were like the basic changes I made. I, I, I made a few other tweaks, but like those were the big ones. I went through and pulled all of my tutors out and pulled Cyclonic Rift out um, of all of my decks. And uh, looking at my decks again this year, that didn't make a difference. <laughs> like it didn't change anything <laughs> about how often I won. Oh, um, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it was going to. Um, and in reflecting on that a little bit, I would say... Probably part of the reason that changed nothing in my decks is because, number one, I'm not a combo player, really. Yeah. Um, and, and I tend to not run kind of those silver bullet game-winning cards. I, like, I'm not running Expropriate or Crater Hoof in any of my decks. So there tends to not be a target I was going to grab that would end games anyway. Right. So while you might think, in theory, removing a Vamp Tutor and a Demonic Tutor from a black deck was going to significantly lower their win rate, or you know, at least lower it somewhat. The reality is, I was using Demonic Tutor half the time to go get like a Phyrexian Arena or go get a removal <laughs> spell to deal with somebody else's problem. I've I seen you do this, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wasn't using them at the time to to win games necessarily. I mean, like that that contributes to your win percentage, I guess, by removing a problem or having card advantage. But like. I wasn't using them to go get a card that won me the game that turn. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so while I technically like powered down my decks, I, I, I didn't like <laughs> it didn't really change much for me other than I just no longer run tutors. And I think that's probably not true if somebody's deck plays in a different style. I think removing all your tutors, if you are someone who does run combo, who does run those kind of cards, is going to hit differently than it hits when I did it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That is very interesting. So would you say that your reaction this year compared to last year is more of an, uh oh, like that, that's kind of the, the tone I think that it might take. Like you, you were, you looked at the last year and like, Hmm, these, I feel like, you know, I want to make sure everyone's having a good time with these. So I'll, I'll tweak it in these ways and that should be good. And then you look at this year and you're like, uh oh, that didn't work. Yes. Well, what am I going to do now? Because like what what would you like what would the next step be to that i can't imagine that i like you're eager to cut out more cards from right. that deck in any way so 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 that that's a really good point cuz like one of the things when i've i've talked to people and i actually made a a tweet thread on this on twitter about this was well if people you're playing with don't feel like you're winning an unusual amount of times maybe it's not a problem hmm. and and i I do think that's kind of the conclusion I've came to because because what I wound up maybe thinking about more than why my deck like the power level of my decks is I've spent a lot more time thinking about the intangibles that might lend my decks more wins um, that have nothing to do with the cards in that list necessarily. Hmm. So that's what I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And, and I think really when I when I spend a lot of time pondering why does this deck why did this deck win 40% of its games? I think a lot of the stuff is stuff that isn't there on the physical cards necessarily. Okay. Um it's 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 who I'm playing against, it's how I play, it's how I brew, it's how threatening the cards are in the deck. It's a lot of those little things that like 
win me one game here and one game there and one game there. And if like you add that up over the course of six months so far, that's a difference between winning, you know, 28% of your games and 39% of your games. Okay. So I, I think at, at this point for me, I, I just don't think it's it's anything physically like removing these three cards is probably not going to change very much. Um, it, it's much more other factors and, and we can delve into those because I'm curious how how you have felt before we go too much into that about looking at your own numbers. Well, and so that's actually it. You were mentioning some intangibles and you're right. I think we should get to those a little bit later because I do want to sort of concretize the conversation by getting some specific examples about which decks we're referring to. Sure. So for you, what are the decks that you've had the greatest amount of success with this year? So the three that that, that are my win percentage that are, that are above 40, it's Jahira, Friend of the Forest, and Agent on the Iron Throne. So it's a commander with a background. Um, it's Tekic, Salvage Splicer, and Malcolm, and Arden, and Essior. So my equipment deck, my you know Golem Splicer deck, and my Eldrazi Spawn and Scion deck. <laughs> um, I will note, it's probably not a coincidence that all three of those decks have two cards in the command zone. I, think that's I was just going to say. Yeah. That's, yeah. An, that, that's an advantage, I think, for sure. So that, that probably adds a couple points. You know, that's going to win me a couple extra games here or there too, just because I have kind of a functionally a card advantage. All right. Well, interestingly, to, to get onto some of my own numbers here, um, the ones that I've had the most success with have not had two things in the zone. So that's a, a, a <laughs> sure. big swig in the other direction. Um, so overall, I've actually played at the current moment exactly 100 games of Commander so far this year, and I've won 31 of them. So yay, 31% win percentage. Woohoo! Um, but the, the decks specifically, I've got I feel a little bit weird about saying the exact numbers on them because, to be honest, these particular decks I don't have a ton of reps with. We're talking of like mm-hmm. at max about six games with with each of these, and that's not a huge percentage. So, you know, even a couple more games with these could radically change these numbers. So I don't want to look too deep into this. Um, but so far, my winningest decks are Titania, which I have yet to lose a game with this year. The Mimeoplasm, I've won four of the five games I've played with that deck this year, so that's an 80% win percentage. Um, Felice, I've only played three games, but I've won two of them, so 66% of the time. Vohar, which is my reanimator deck, I've played six games with that, I've won half of them. And then my other winningest percentage is actually decks I've borrowed. I've played four games with decks that are not mine, and I've won 50% of those. And I'm like, yeah, that feels cool. All right, cool, nice. Um, so I'm not going to look, you know, there's nothing I can do about that one. I didn't build them. Um, sure, right. But yeah, uh, a reanimator, black white tokens, another. Uh, Reanimator, Hi, Mimiplasm, and Fohar. I really like graveyards. Um, and then Titania as a bunch of lands shenanigans as well. Those are the decks that I've had the greatest amount of success with. But again, the sample size on those is a little bit small, so I'm not going to necessarily read too much into some of them. Um, yeah, it, it, my win percentage on the year, I'm at a, as of tonight, um, I, I finished my 130, 136th game. Oh, um, and my winner's percentage on the year is about 37%. Okay, yeah. Um, spread across all of my decks. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right, going back to a point that you said before about like whether your opponents feel that it is just like, oh man, <laughs> is more of the point. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't think that some of these numbers can show us that. And another thing that I'll mention just like way in advance of whatever episode we do when we finally have all the numbers is like, oh, y- y'all, the sample size on these is so teensy. It's so, so tiny. So like these numbers like 
are kind of fun and speculative and they really only matter in terms of like us this is not like us saying yeah. that oh if you're playing a mimiplasm deck you'll win 80 percent of your games like i just want to make sure that people don't get it twisted <laughs> you know yeah my my, my count on, on games is a little bit higher than yours because both the jahira deck and the itch tech deck are probably my most recent brews mm-hmm. so i've just played them more this year because they were new to me and i wanted to get reps yeah and they're both over 20 and ardenesior is like i think around i think it was at 14 or 15 games um, so, so I have a few, but like, that's still a relatively small sample size, all things considered. Oh yeah. The deck that I've played the most this year, surprising no one is my Baba La Saga deck. And I've got a 35% win percentage on that one. And then also my commander commander deck, uh, I've got a 29% win percentage on those. And I've played each of those like 20 or 17 times. Uh, and like, I feel pretty, you know, pretty comfortable with that. That's not a, a number that alarms me. I'm like, oh, this is falling decently close enough to the average. But something like Titania not losing yet or the Mimiplasm winning four of the five games I played, I'm like, okay, whoa, I didn't expect that because, and this is the weird thing, like I'm so familiar with the weaknesses of that deck that to me, it feels like every game that I play with, it feels like a a, a bite my fingernails. Like, is this actually going, I feel like stressed out. I don't know that this can win. Am I going to be able to scramble it together? So every game that I play with, it feels exciting, but just looking at the numbers, it feels like it might be a domineering deck. And I don't know if that's the experience that my opponents feel with it, but looking at the numbers, I'm kind of like, do I need to look into this a little bit more? I'm not sure. Yeah. I, 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 I think that what really matters at the end of the day is how your opponents, opponents feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's going to matter. I, I, I think the first thing I, I would like to maybe touch on a little bit too is it depends who you're playing against yes um, yeah oh you beat i, I was gonna bring that up too so i'm glad that you beat me to sure. it <laughs> and that, that makes a big difference i think um and i'll use an example because because i went and played at my shot local lgs tonight um and the last game of the night was against a uh of scorch thrash deck which is the, I think it's Jund, right? Commander that you can tap and give everyone Jund mana and mm-hmm. mana burn exists for your opponents. So the, the the goal usually is to give your opponents a bunch of mana um, and force them to like get get burned by it to do direct damage. Um, oftentimes there's a way to untap your lock multiple times to like, you know, force six or, or nine men into their mana pool that's going to just turn directly into damage. Um, however... When we sit down and I see that Yearlock deck, I know that like I just relayed the game plan because I know it. I've played against that deck over the you know last two years multiple times. I know what it's going to be doing. Right. I happen to have grabbed a Rakdos deck before we started, so I immediately like I'm looking at my hand. I'm like, okay, I want to make sure I don't cast instant spells until that player's turn because I want to be able to dump that mana that he's giving me into casting instants. Number one to take advantage of being given free mana. Number two, not take mana burn. I know to do that because I played against that deck. So like from the get-go, I can start start planning around holding as many instants as possible until the person's giving me mana to cast them for free and everyone else is taking damage. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two players didn't know that. Like I could tell they had never seen the deck before. They're looking at it and, re- and reading it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I, I wound up winning that that game. And and was it because I knew that? I, I, you know, I, I don't know how you'd quantify that, but it absolutely didn't hurt that I was holding on to spells until the Yurlock player gave me mana to cast them. And the other players maybe didn't catch that for a couple turns. The familiarity with the meta is potentially a way that one could phrase that. But I feel like we've probably all been in different situations like that, where if you are very experienced with a certain deck of your own, and then you play against that deck, and you, like you know which pieces are most important to that. Like I would probably say in my Mimeoplasm deck, for instance, like having a pair of shoes, having a lightning greaves, like. 
I'm, I'm probably going to be a little bit stuck if I don't get one of those protective pieces to protect the huge concoction that I create. Mm -hmm. That's going to really nerf the deck if you are able to remove them. And a person who's played against that deck multiple times is going to have a better familiarity with, oh yeah, that Mimeoplasm, if it's allowed to be protected, it will just one-shot someone when it finally comes around. And knowing that from the off can plan even how you keep your opening hand and stuff like that. So right. I really do think that that familiarity with the thing and not being too, not feeling like it catches you off guard is probably the way that I would put it. Right. And that's a big factor. And if I'm playing, you know, one sixth of my games against less entrenched folks that might not know those things, whether it's at an LGS or even maybe at a Magic Con or something, and you are only playing, you know, one out of 10 games in that kind of environment, and you're playing the rest of your games against Matt and I on stream or something. Yeah. People who like live and breathe this stuff. That is going to swing games my way versus, you know, swinging games your way over the course of an entire year. Um, is it going to be the difference between winning a quarter of your games and winning like 44%? Maybe not, but it might be the difference between winning two or three games here or there. And if, if we're, and we're going to talk about a bunch of things beyond that. So I think that's what the difference is. I think, I think once we start adding in those little advantages that we have as content creators, I do think that's that's probably what skews a lot of this data way more than necessarily deck and deck the cards in the deck. Yeah, I, I definitely would agree with that. And it also has not escaped my notice that you said some of the decks that you've had the most success with this year have been decks that are a little bit newer. So even more entrenched players that you will play against, say, like Matt and I on stream, even we are also like surprised by what those decks are capable of doing. And again, it's one of those things that catches us off guard. Another thing that sometimes catches people off guard is the ability to segue into challenge the stats, Dana. <laughs> nice. You caught me. Yeah, I was not ready for that, Joey. Well played. Matt's not here. I will get back more of these. I We need to have a tally at the end of we the should. year. Actually, I think that we should make it like a competition between you and Matt, especially. Run about who is able to, to get more challenge the stats segues over the course of this year. So far, I'm at two. My, my win percentage on segue challenges is at like almost nothing, but I got this one. Okay. I, I will note I'm under no obligation to tell Matt ahead of time this is a competition. <laughs> At some point, I'll maybe make him know, like, you didn't know this, Matt? We've been keeping track of this all year. Oh, man. Let's absolutely do this. <laughs> Listeners, don't let him know. <laughs> if, he does, if he doesn't listen to the episode, that's on him. That's not my problem. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. You know what? I don't care if it's too early for Challenger Stats. I, I got to get my dubs in here somewhere. I got to get my, my, my Ws. So. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. I do want to explore more of those intangibles. But, Dana, let's take a quick break and come back with some challenges. All right, I'm going to jump in here first with our listener submitted challenge the stats from our Discord. Uh, user Fenrir Sun Eater wanted to let us know about a card that they think is being potentially a little bit underplayed. That's the card Contraband Livestock, another card from the Baldur's Gate set, which is potentially an underrated gem here. It is a removal spell in white, and that does have a lot of competition, but there are some pretty good uses for this card. Contraband Livestock is that two mana white instant exile target creature, then roll a d20. On a one through nine, the controller of that creature gets a four, four green ox in exchange. On a 10 through 19, they get a two, two green boar. And on a 20, they would get a zero, one goat token. And Finrir points out that especially for budget players, this would be a pretty good removal spell. I think a good comparison 
for this would actually be something like angelic ascension or re-sculpt or reality shift could be another one like reality shift ultimately is a, an exile spell that gives your opponent a 2-2 two, two. re-sculpt is an exile spell that gives your opponent a 4-4 four, four. angelic ascension also is an exile spell that really didn't catch on in any popularity it gives your opponent a 4-4 four, four with flying and like you don't want to give them an evasive thing but here you could get them either, most often, a 2-2 or a 4-4. And as budget removal spells go, like, yeah, that's kind of neat. If you're looking for a little bit more exile stuff and you want to go past the regular path to exile and source to plowshares, I think that this could be a really, really good pick. And that's before you even get into the fact that sometimes you yourself can make use of these things. If you're if you want this thing to be potentially a good flexible removal spell, or if you think that you could use more tokens to populate, for instance, sometimes that does come up. It's currently only showing up in 3,700 decks, so an effective 0% of the decks that could use it. And this is just a little potential removal spell that Fenrir Sun Eater wanted to point out as another potential piece of redundancy if you were looking for especially a budget deck that wanted to run just a little bit more. So thank you so much for the challenge. Yeah, thank you very much for listening and for uh, giving us a challenge this week. My card I want to talk about this week is a land that lets you sacrifice a creature. Um, Ooh. That's one of the most useful things in, in, in Commander, being able to at will just make a creature you control go away. And there's a ton of reasons it's useful, whether it's something like, like Frexian Tower that lets you sacrifice a thing to come out mana ahead, you know, f further than you could just tapping it for mana. Uh, high Market gains you a single life. Oh, High Market. Really the re <laughs> right. But really the reason people usually do that is either to stop someone from like taking a creature or doing something with their own creature or because you have a reason to put your creature into the graveyard. Um, for myself, I have a Jury Master of the Review deck. I want to sacrifice Jury when there's a bunch of counters on Jury to do damage to somebody's face. Um, you know, there's plenty of uh, of commanders that want to do something similar, and you just want to have the ability to sacrifice either your commander or creatures. For example, Mimeoplasm, we talked about Joey's deck. Hey, hey, hey. High Market that I mentioned is in 100,000 decks. Frixian Tower is in 100,000 plus decks. Those are really, really useful. But if you are playing in a deck that wants that effect, like my jury deck does, you just want all of those effects, even if they're generally pretty bad. Mirror in the Morning Well is pretty bad. It costs three mana to sacrifice a creature. Um, it's also $20. That's out of most people's budget as well. Mm. One card that is not out of your budget and is also pretty bad, <laughs> Keldon Necropolis. It's in about a thousand decks in EDH rec. It's a land, one colorless mana your mana pool if you tap it, or you can spend four in a red to sacrifice a creature and it deals two damage to a creature or a player. That's a terrible rate. I am not going to tell you right now <laughs> that spending six mana functionally on the land to sacrifice one of your creatures is a good rate, except for it's a good rate when like you have a land that's not taking up a slot in your deck functionally and you are playing some kind of commander where you just want to always have the ability to sacrifice in response to a thing. My jury deck would be an example of that. Being able to do that at will is the kind of thing where you kind of can't have too many lands that do it. That's why Phyrexian Tower is, is in so many decks. That's why High Market's in so many decks. And if you want to go deep and have as many options as possible, Keldon Necropolis may look like a terrible card, but I've killed plenty of people with it in that deck because it's just a land that I can have out and at will sacrifice my commander to dome somebody. If you were playing <laughs> that kind of deck and you've already filled your, your list with multiple lands that sacrifice creatures, 
you probably wish you had more. And that is one I think most folks don't know exists. As bad as it is in those kind of situations. It's so bad. (laughs) I never regret seeing it because it it doesn't come into play tapped. I can tap out for mana. And once in a while, it's the reason I kill somebody in that deck. Oh, man. This is this is like possibly one of the jankiest things that you've said, but I totally get where you're coming from. Because like if you're playing, you're at sushis that have these death triggers yes. that you want to get. Sometimes that matters. If you're playing stuff that you, if, if someone's trying to point a contraband livestock at your stuff and you want it to die instead of go into exile because you want to reanimate it or stuff like that. Right. And I've got um, a deck, a deck that can't run this ironically, but my plus one counters deck um, is all colors except red. But like finding a way to to sacrifice my creatures so that my Rayhan can move plus one counters to other creatures matters a lot. And the things I get most excited about in that deck tend to be like the Ohi markets because I need just any sacrifice outlet. And you know what people aren't going to let me keep in play for a long time? A sacrifice outlet. Right. <laughs> yeah. If they're on your land, you know, that Piru the Volatile has entered the chat. There's a commander that really wants a death trigger whenever you need it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I can totally see a justification for these, even if this is the jankiest of those versions. Sometimes that redundancy is what you need. <laughs> Absolutely a terrible card, but there's also more than a thousand decks out there that want as many of those effects as possible that could be running in. Yeah. When I still had that Cardor deck together that was like constant like per, yeah perfect example blinking car door needed to always like be re-goading and re-goading and re-goading I, I absolutely would have used this when i still had that deck together so all right weird pick but i like it interesting stuff dana all right what do you say we get back into our main topic here we were we were talking about some intangibles some of the the small things that can accumulate into the winningness of of a deck and I think there's a lot that could be baseline examined here, like examining whether the decks that we have are particularly pricey, for instance, like would that be a factor? And I happen to know the answer to yours already is that no, that's not a factor (laughs) because like your Jahira and Agent of the Iron Throne deck is full of cards that make Eldrazi spawns, not exactly heavy hitters. (laughs) So um, I don't know, that's just my read on the situation, but the decks that I have that are the winningest don't feel to me to be my most expensive decks all the time. I mean, it definitely can make a difference. Like if, if you are able to swap out a counter spell for a mana drain, <laughs> that's always an upgrade. Uh, um, and, and some people can't afford to do that. Like there's definitely situations where having access to those things gives you an edge. And, and I'll, I'll use one it's, that's that's I definitely have an edge on. I, I'm someone who acquired a ton of strip mines back when strip mine was like a three dollar card. Yeah, yeah. Because um, my thought process was, I'm just going to put strip mine in every deck till the end of time. Um, so I might as well, you know, snap a bunch of these up. And, and so I have a ton of strip mines, and I put them in every single deck. Strip mine is no longer a three dollar card; it's a you know twenty some dollar card. So it's much more difficult for folks to put those in their decks than it is for me to put that in my deck. Does that give me an edge? Yeah, it definitely does. So like, there's situations where I probably would have lost a game except for I had a strip mine available to remove someone's Nykthos or remove their, you know, Cabal Coffers or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there's definitely, I, th- I think, I, I don't think you can look at a deck and say price isn't relevant. I think it, it definitely is here or there, but um, it's super subjective. You know, there's there's super powerful, uh, talking about the, the, the mono blue Urza deck filled with <laughs> just terrible one and zero drop artifacts that's super strong like you can build that deck for you know 25 dollars and that would be very very powerful oh yeah a, a lightly modded zephy precon is a storm deck like that that deck can R- yeah that deck pops off right out the box or the faldorn precon as well like yeah i i don't think that price would be a, a good indicator of power level here I, i'll fully admit that my mimeoplasm deck has a good win rate and that is probably my spendiest deck 
But the other decks that I have that are winningest the most are certainly not. And I've got, like, my Conrad deck is also, like, that's probably my second most expensive deck. Mm -hmm. And I've won one game with it this year. He's not winning a whole lot of games. So, like, to me, price doesn't seem to be our culprit. You mentioned earlier that you took tutors out of your deck and you don't play fast mana. So those also don't seem to me to be culprits that we could easily pin as, like, oh, this this is a thing that's affecting a lot. Rather, a thing that I kind of want to pick your brain about, Dana, is actually an aspect to the decks that you mentioned that I feel I feel a little bit like the fact that some of these are new, that sticks out a lot. And, and I kind of mentioned that earlier before I stole that challenge of sats segue from you, uh, so suave as I, as I did so. But like not knowing how your Itch Technique and Malcolm deck works and then suddenly getting blindsided by it, I feel like that was kind of how that game plan works. Once you realize the synergies in that deck are there, uh, it's already too late. And I feel a little bit the same way with your Jahira deck as well, where once I realize what your deck is doing, the game's already over. I feel like those decks kind of have an out of nowhereness that means I can't prepare for them. And then being a little bit newer helps that, but also just the game plan itself is not broadcasting. It's not hardcore telegraphing, here's what my plan is, y'all, that would allow people who haven't even played against it before to prepare for it in advance. That feels like a a big aspect to some of these. Just to me, I don't know what your read is. Uh, no, for sure. I, I think the other kind of mix in with those same things, the, the other thing that I think matters is there are cards in Commander that when they hit the field, everyone knows that that's something that needs to get dealt with. <laughs> um, you know, Consecrated Sphinx, everyone's immediate thoughts, we need to solve that Consecrated Sphinx problem. Avenger of Zendikar comes up, people need to deal with Avenger of Zendikar. Um, like, there's, there's plenty of cards that I think when they hit the field, people know we need to solve that problem immediately or we're going to lose the game. Mm-hmm. I very intentionally tend to build my deck without very many of those cards. If anything, I tend to build my decks with cards that make people want to ignore them and thus me for long periods of time. Can attest um, to this, yes. <laughs> so so I, I do think that definitely helps me win games, even with people that know I'm doing that. Because even if you know that this card in my deck is, you know, th- this thing that's making Eldrazi spawns and signs, let's say Awakening Zone makes uh, Eldrazi spawn every turn. Let's say you know that that's a better card in my deck than it, than it is kind of in general. Mm-hmm. That doesn't change the fact that that third person played a Consecrated Sphinx. <laughs> and and <laughs> while you might be aware that Awakening Zone is a problem, you still know Consecrated Sphinx is a bigger problem that you have to deal with right now. So I, I very much operate on the, the strategy that I want my stuff to, number one, not appear threatening. And even if people are aware it's threatening, it's still really difficult to justify spending removal spells on it when this thing is out there and this thing is out there that are much scarier. Yes. And I think that wins me games. I, I would say on the opposite end of the spectrum, we played a few games recently with a friend who had a mono black deck that had a bunch of absolutely terrifying cards from Legends, Chains of Mephistopheles, The Abyss, <laughs> um, cards like that, that, that absolutely like those hit the field and you have to remove them. Um and that was a situation where it was kind of the opposite. The deck's power level didn't necessarily do what you need to do when you're playing cards like that that draw that kind of attention. Yes. Um, so, so, yeah. so I think comparing those two things simultaneously, I think, is interesting. When I'm playing cards that, like, even if you know they're powerful, you kind of just can't deal with them because there's other things to deal with, versus that situation where even if you know the deck isn't necessarily that busted, you just have to deal with the abyss. Yeah, I, I think 
that also is kind of a quality like the same thing I, I mentioned about your decks that out of nowhereness versus something broadcasting telegraphing the game plan like the abyss does or like some of those um i think that's also quality that some of my winningest decks also will have like mm -hmm. titania for instance that's the mono green commander that makes five three elementals when your lands die and one of the things that i love so much about that deck is the fact that it can just burst an army out of nowhere it's not like oh i'll just make a a couple of elementals here and there the best card in that deck by a mile is zurin orb and right off the bat you might not expect that zurin orb this random zero mana artifact sacrifice a land to gain to life like yo okay whatever but if i were to play that early and let people put, have the potential to destroy it that would be a huge error on my part because really what that deck can do is sacrifice a bunch of lands out of nowhere probably draw a butt ton of cards off of like an elemental bond or a tribute to the world tree and then slam a concordant crossroads to give all these brand new elementals haste and then suddenly here's a lethal board state for everyone that no one saw coming and it was pretty easy to slap that together but it really went from like zero to a hundred out of almost nowhere and the mimiplasm is kind of that same way there's like one turn potentially to interact with that if i've done stuff correctly because my mimiplasm will take on the form of like a tyranax rex with a butt ton of counters from a lord of extinction and you've got like can you stop that from killing you in one hit i sure hope so or my thalese deck is possibly another like it kind of looks like at first that i just have a bunch of one one spirits in play you know she just makes a bunch of one one spirits like okay whatever and then slapping down a jazal gold main in that deck which turns all those spirits into like you know 15 15s or something like that that suddenly becomes it's like a make your own crater hoof situation and i think all of those have that quality of like oh i didn't realize how big of a problem that actually was um and that can really be be nice to to have those like oh i'm just flying a little bit under the radar but you don't realize that i'm like a turn away from actually being able to just devastate something in a way that isn't quite as i don't know to use my conrad deck for instance like you see a conrad in the command zone and i think that's why i have not won a whole lot of games with that deck because people are like i know what conrad can do i'm not gonna let him get the chance to do it like i can't let conrad live which totally makes sense because conrad is just like here's what i'm up to and it's hard to hide you know no that well and that's that, that's a good point your, your, your titania deck is the one that jumps out at me on your list of ones you were just talking about. It's 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 only played two games and you've won hundred percent. I feel like over a longer timeline, that's the one that would suffer the most. Sure. Because like Sir Conrad, it's the deck that has like that single inflection point where if you solve the problem of the commander, the rest of the deck doesn't necessarily have tools that can still get you over the finish line. Mm -hmm. Whereas Mimeoplasm absolutely does. Like you can Mimeoplasm is going to win you games, but you just <laughs> talked about a couple of the giant horrifying creatures, Lord of Extinction or Tyrannex Rex in that. <laughs> They're deck. also still just huge horrifying creatures. Right. Those yeah. <laughs> are a problem regardless of whether or not you're making Mimeoplasm into a copy of it and putting counters on it. Like those are going to be an issue. Yeah. Felice absolutely is a powerhouse, but you're still making a ton of tokens in that deck. Like there are there are things that will have to be answered in those decks, and in this the same is true in mine as well. Talking about like Arden Essior, you know, you can remove Essior all day long. Arden only needs to be on the field one time for me to equip up something, even if it's like a Blink Moth Nexus I'm animated. And if I put five pieces of equipment on it, I'm probably going to kill somebody. Mm -hmm. There's a lot. It's a lot more difficult to solve most of these problems, with the exception of Titania, than it is. Um, for I think a lot of people's decks. So there's, there's a lot of paths to victory those decks can take. And I think that helps a lot. So I think that's probably what holds Conrad back. People, there's that one point where people are like, if I can stop this thing from happening, I can slow that deck down and keep it from winning. Um, and, and the rest of our decks don't have that. It's just really difficult to find that, like that one 
that one roadblock there that you can like choke point that deck off. Yeah, yeah, very much. It, and it's interesting too to see the other decks I've I've got that have either a normal like a 25% win percentage or a 0% win percentage like Will Helt has won exactly 25% of his games this year and that is a much more gradual deck it doesn't necessarily rely upon the commander like he's there and he can certainly do some good stuff if I stick him in play but the deck can function without him but regardless the way I've built that deck is just here's a bunch of zombies with a bunch of zombie lords and it is not going to out of nowhere suddenly the game is over in any of that doesn't have the equivalent of a Gisal gold main in that deck necessarily or my Virtus and Gorm deck. This is I haven't won a single game with that one this year at all, and I don't think it's hard to see why. Because Virtus cuts people's life in half, and no one likes that. Right. <laughs> like even if it's not the most threatening thing on play, people are like, uh, uh-uh, uh, I don't want you to hit me. I, I, I like my life total to stay at forty. Thanks. Like I don't want to. I don't want to drop by half. Um, even though like that deck is like, uh, you know, I, I know its weaknesses very very well. It has many, but the fact that it projects so far in advance, how annoying it is. That is possibly one of the biggest weaknesses that's going to hold it back from a huge degree of success unlike the other ones that can be a little bit more of a surprise yeah i I think being powerful while while simultaneously going under the radar for multiple reasons uh, is a real advantage and i think that's an advantage i think people become aware of the longer you play whether it's you know the more reps you get the more time you've been around the game the more entrenched you are um that is one thing I, i i have noticed playing against newer players um, they tend to want to roll out those threats and they want to answer a threat with another threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think, again, that's one of those things that probably costs newer players games um, and maybe wins you and I a game here or there because we have a little bit more patience. Um, I don't know if that's even necessarily like a skill that we have over somebody else so much as it is you, you, if you just play as much commander or talk about as much commander as we talk about it, you're just going to accidentally pick up a few things that are just going to give you a win here or there. Yeah, no, I think that's very, very fair. Even being able to time when should I play this commander sometimes requires a couple of reps yeah. to figure out what the most optimal time is. If I just run out Conrad on, on you know, as soon as I can play him, he's no, he's not going to live very long. Uh, as it is, he currently doesn't live very long. People do not let me keep Conrad in play, and you shouldn't. Don't let me do that. Um, but that does kind of inform the way that I play the deck, and that could hypothetically give me more success with that deck if I am better able to set the stage before Conrad's arrival and and that sort of thing. And that, yeah, that does take a a couple of reps for sure. I'm kind of curious. This is for me, like the actual overall, like tracking all of the games and the data and stuff. The thing that I actually think is most valuable for me isn't to make any sweeping statements about anything of like, oh, here's uh, my data is going to reveal something huge about the state of the game. It's like, absolutely not. For me, all of this is introspective and personal. Uh, I am, for example, most interested in the average game length of my games, which we'll talk about in that future episode. But like, if my average game length is for, as a hypothetical here, ten turns, and I've got a deck that has won a lot and it usually wins, that the games usually end around turn seven. That for me is informative. That like, oh, this deck is probably better than all the rest of my decks, and that kind of makes me curious for you about again going back to the people that you are playing against um do you think it's possible potentially that some of the decks that have a greater win percentage like instead of changing any of the cards in your deck do you think that a better solution would be to play that deck against different types of playgroups or different opponents instead or different decks of those opponents 
it, now that you are better prepared to know what that deck is capable of, and you can inform them better what the deck is capable of too. Yeah, I, I think that probably does make a difference. I think if I was playing against a a, a maybe newer play group, people that were less experienced, something like my Glissa uh, Suns, it's Glissa Sunflare, not was Glissa the Trader, mm-hmm. but the the Glissa Sunflare version of the deck right now is much simpler than the Glissa the Trader deck. It's just Death Touch creatures, and I'm smashing face with it. Um, you know, it's it's been winning around 35%, I think, last I checked, of the games. But it's also like not – there's nothing particularly mysterious about what's going on there. <laughs> um, I've been playing that Commander and style deck for a decade. That definitely gives me an edge. But I also don't think there's something mysterious happening that a new player wouldn't be able to grok um, in a way that like they may struggle with figuring out what is about to happen with that Jahira and Agent of the Iron Throne deck where all of a sudden Agent is out and I will you know cast – a Meat Hook Massacre for zero and then sacrifice 14 Eldrazi Spawns and Scions and deal 28 <laughs> to the entire table. That deck is so nasty, man. It's yeah. awesome. So like the, a, a newer player is just going to not know what just occurred. Whereas like Glissa deck, I'm just throwing Death Touch creatures at your face over the course of 10 turns and eventually you're going to get worn down. And uh, yeah, I, I do think that that is definitely something to, to be considered. Some decks are just going to play play differently against a different group of people. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that is also potentially, I don't know, looking at my my very losing-y Conrad deck over here, I, I honestly take the fact that he hasn't won a whole lot of games as like the kind of a sign that I'm still probably playing it against the right type of opponents who are prepared for what that deck can do so that I don't accidentally overpower a table. And to an extent, I have actually a little bit of a concern about that with my Mimeoplasm deck. Like my instinct here is like, am I playing this against the wrong tables? Because I don't want to take anyone for a ride if this deck is actually like better than I thought it was. Um, and like maybe the reevaluation for me with that deck because it's my baby. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to change it. And that deck, I'm also not playing like a bunch of tutors. I'm not even playing in tomb and buried alive to fill the graveyard. I'm just like, here's random combinations, but they're lethal. But even then, I'm just like, you know, it's possible that I've pulled that deck out at times where maybe I should have gone for something else. And that to me is a more important takeaway than the specific cards that I'm always using. It's more about respecting the power level of the rest of the playgroup and being better able to correctly identify what I am up to rather than abstractly thinking about you know, oh, am I up to like actually having something that I can point to and be like, yeah, I want to make sure I'm not punching above my weight class here. Yeah, I also do think, that, and I guess we can kind of maybe look to wrap this up a little bit. Um, I, I do think it's not worth getting too in your own head about the exact win percentage you have. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely like. Could I power down my decks to compensate for? the edges I have based on, you know, experience um, at both piloting my deck and reading the table and reading players and my decks being unassuming and drawing less threats than other people. Um, I I could pull out, I, I could run, you know, uh, all basic lands instead of like having some lands that, you know, the the the, the shock lands in there or the, the check lands, whatever lands I have in my deck mm-hmm. that probably be both color mana. I would absolutely slow my decks down if I ran a suite of all basics. Now, I am never going to run all basics in a deck. I don't even like. I, 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 I was just thinking. I'm just like Dan is talking about playing can, more than three basic lands in his deck. Barely tolerate running like right. I can barely tolerate running like four to four to six. Um, that, that's like, as weird of a universe as Joey sure, being able to yeah. segue into challenge the stats. It's just like what? Like yeah. <laughs> but like I could do that, and that would definitely I would say over the course of a year change the win percentage of my in my decks. But is that like at some point I feel like you can just accept the fact that you are going to have some kind of edges baked into your 
gameplay and play patterns and and brews that just can't necessarily be accounted for. And I, I don't think I want to tune them down that far below what other folks are doing, right? Like if everyone in the playgroup was playing with all basics, well, that's one thing. But everyone else is playing with a similar looking land base. I don't know if I feel an obligation to run a worse land base just to shave a few points off my win percentage. Mm. I, and, and frankly, I don't know if people I'm playing with would want me to do that. Yeah. I, 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 you know, because that can come across as condescending too. I don't know if I think like, that's necessarily a solution either. I, I like, can I, I hope I phrase this delicately. I may not, but like there are, uh, I feel like maybe we've all met this kind of person, but there are totally people who are like, oh, this is my janky jank deck. And then when they win with the janky jank deck, they're like a little bit smug about it. <laughs> they're right, yeah, they're like yeah. a little, they're just like, oh, wow, I can't believe I beat all of your thousands of dollars deck with my, you know, this, this little pile of jank. And it's just kind of like, I don't know that you need to rub salt in the wound, dude. Like that's. That's a little bit uncouth. Like, congrats. Yeah, it's cool. But let's all focus on the joy of it rather than you feeling like you've won this grandiose victory. Like, it, it, it's neat. You just, you don't got to be a dunce about it. Like, it, I don't know. I, maybe, mm. maybe I'm just venting my spleen here a little bit too much. But I've seen sometimes there, there are folks who take a little bit too much pride in that and it just starts to feel a little bit gauche. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right that if, especially if you were to broadcast like, oh, I've totally powered down this deck and I'm still winning with it. Right. Oh my word. I would, I would challenge this more than just the stats. I'd be like, Dana, no. Like, <laughs> And to, to use kind of an example here uh, of, of something that goes the other direction, um, I'm a relatively casual golfer. I, I go out a couple times a month with a group of friends and, and I have, we, we usually try to see who wins and it's not me. Um, <laughs> and, and it's not that I'm necessarily a terrible golfer, but I don't go practice. And whereas like one of my friends who I do golf with on occasion, he goes out a couple times a week and hits a few bucket of buckets of balls and he golfs regularly on the course we tend to go to. So like he knows what corners he can cut and what corners he can't cut. And mm -hmm. there's again, like talking about us playing commander, he's got a handful of little edges baked into his game. That's going to give, make, make him shoot a better round the vast majority of the time. Is he supposed to use terrible clubs to offset that? Like, I, I never feel that way when I'm playing against him. Yeah. I was like, yeah, he's got some edges. He's going to win more games. That's just how it's going to work. And I, I I do think that same logic can apply to Commander very often. I'm not saying you should just write off. <laughs> you shouldn't write it off either. Like there are definitely sometimes your deck might be imbalanced. But just because you're winning more than a quarter of your games doesn't mean there's a problem. So I, I, I've come, that's a conclusion I've come to. Yeah, I would almost go so far as to say, I think here, like in talking all of this and conclusion that I think I'm coming to is that, uh, I don't know, if I had, like, if I get to the end of the year and I've played like 20 games with that Titania deck and I still at 100%, I'm going to be like, okay, queen, what's going on here? Sure. But, if, and to the same extent, if I get to the end of the year and I've played 20 games with Conrad and I've still only won one with him, I'm going to be like, all right, I, I might need to do a little bit of investigating about what's really going on here. And maybe there is nothing wrong. You know, those numbers can still totally happen in a universe where there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. It's just, you know, numbers are numbers. This this totally happens. It's just the way that it goes. This is a casual game and I don't need all of my decks to be to be winningy. Uh, to make up a term here but the the thing i would almost say don't 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 look don't don't examine that too closely dana winning it's a word now um but the uh the thing that i would almost say is probably more important to keep track of is actually like how often everyone else that you're playing is winning more than yourself like if i notice that someone hasn't won a game in like months 
I can imagine that's probably eating them, eating away at them a little bit. And that more than anything is going to inform which decks I want to play against them and how that game will go. Mm-hmm. Because I want to make sure that they are still getting the chance to do the thing. Yeah. And and that more than anything. Like whatever my decks are doing is whatever they're doing. But I just want to make sure that they are having the chance to shine like I know they want to. Yeah, that's a, a perfect kind of way to, to wrap this all up, I think, because that's very much the, the the place I'm at with this. I think it's good to double check all of this stuff, but I I also don't think it's super useful to get too much in your in your head about the exact way the numbers break down. Yeah. Um. And, and we'll revisit this at the end of the year because I'm really curious to see how these numbers change as we've played more, and, and we're going to have you know multiple events over the course of this year too. Like mm-hmm. we're going to both definitely wind up north of 200 games, if not you know possibly north of 300 in my case. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and and that stat alone makes a difference. <laughs> You know, yeah. talking about like golfing more and knowing the golf course more. It's the same thing, like right. The fact that I'm going to probably play closing it on 300 games this year, and you're going to pl- definitely play over 200, is just going to mean we're going to win more games because we have just seen the deck more, gotten more reps, seen the, the p- opponent's decks more, seen those interactions more. Um, so, yeah, it, it, I think it's it's very interesting data to interrogate. But I also, I, I I've gotten after doing this a couple times. I don't get too worried about it necessarily. Yeah. I think actually the thing we probably should be worried about is that now that we've talked about it, listeners who do find us at events and get games in with us are going to be like, ha ha. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to take them down. I'm going to lower yeah. that win percentage. That's going to be me at the end yeah. of the year. It's going to be so much lower. <laughs> like sandbag with those crappy old drowsy spawns. I know what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's something we might need to watch out for. But yes, I'm also excited to get to the end of the year to look at all of the other stuff that we're tracking, or I guess the stuff that I'm tracking, because you're just looking at the wins, but I'm also tracking the fast manas and who won when they're on turn one and what turn was the first KO and all of that other stuff. And again, it's going to be small sample sizes. I'm tracking yet, wins, but, but still. I'm tracking wins and how many challenge of stats segues I get. Yeah. Those, those, yeah. Those oh, numbers man. that matter to me. Yeah. Awesome stuff. Listeners, we'd love to hear from you about, like, do you have any decks that you feel are winning too much? And what do you do about that? And how, you know, how do other folks feel about that too? This is a really, really interesting thing to interrogate and to look into. And if you are also tracking your games, we'd love to hear your experiences with that as well. But for now, we are going to call this episode to a close. If our listeners would like to get in touch with us, Dana, where is it that they can find you on the onlines? You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. I'm writing articles for EDH Rec and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDH Recast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz. And you can find the cast at EDH Recast on all of the online spaces too. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember... Remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>